Today we are speaking with Taya Foley. She is a mother of two, an empowerment blogger and a self-love coach with a passion for all things womanhood, sisterhood and mindset. Taya created And So She Thought in order to empower women, connect and by sharing their voices and stories and by exploring the many issues that we face and just don't talk about. So today we are going to be discussing with Taya story of partial molar miscarriage. Also some key themes include blood donation, um, a later term miscarriage and the challenges of having to wait for medical reasons before you can start trying again. And also we briefly touch on the 12 week rule that people often discuss in terms of announcing pregnancies. And I really hope, well, we really hope that you gain a lot out of Taya's story and here we are to share it. Welcome, Taya. Welcome to the Still Mama Tribe podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Taya. Thank you so yes. much for having me. I'm really honoured to be here. Yeah, in our beautiful little space and our very first guest. So this is very exciting for us. Oh, I am like beyond thrilled <laughs> to be your first guest. It's very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, so before we sort of delve into your story mm -hmm. and you know throw you <laughs> won't throw you in the deep end um but yeah let's just let's just chat a little bit about you mm -hmm. and yeah you're about to move overseas yeah um my husband has actually just had an opportunity to play college football as a punter um he is 34 and yes he can still go to college <laughs> there's no age limit um but that means that 12 days before he left, we found out our whole world was changing. So yep. I'm really excited about what that will bring. Um, but I'm also just dealing with all the things that need to happen to make that happen. So yeah. see how it all goes. Absolutely. It's just been a whirlwind of your everything at the moment. Yeah. So, yes. Well, I do have two kids and a dog and a house to sell. So yep. lots of fun. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Very big stuff. <laughs> Life changing again. So yeah. And we were discussing um, when we were sitting down for a cup of tea mm -hmm. um, that, you know, for you, you're explaining that what you've been through is kind of been, you've been able to handle this situation of moving quite quite well and how you've been strengthened yeah. through it so yeah absolutely I'm naturally a super sensitive soul um however I found having gone through my miscarriage and also through being a parent in general um my resilience is so much higher than I could ever have imagined if I had have looked at myself being in this situation previously I think sheer panic would have overtaken me and I definitely am having my own my moments of overwhelm however day to day I'm generally pretty good and just taking on a task at a time and making my way through that yeah okay so I thought I would kind of kick off Taya's story a little bit uh from my perspective I first came across Taya uh when I experienced my own miscarriage and I um, had a very similar experience to Taya and I'm not going to take away too much from your story by <laughs> jumping in and kind of jumping the gun on some details. But I came across your blog and very much resonated with your story um, and it was something that I read multiple times over and over. Um, 
and obviously I hadn't reached out in that time uh, but it was um, a little bit later that I did uh, once I had released my cards and kind of had been through my own healing journey and I sent you a pack of cards in gratitude for you sharing your story because it meant a huge huge deal for me so for me to sit here with you today is actually such a convergence of so many different worlds and um sorry I'm feeling quite emotional um so it's really beautiful to have you here thank you so much that means a lot to me (laughs) I know and you're so special to both of us in so many ways and obviously you actually meeting Megan for the first time face to face today um Mm. but obviously you know we've been in touch for so long now and obviously actually for the fact that we met at a bloggers brunch sort of mm-hmm. kind of world's pathing like almost mm-hmm. this time last year and um and now sharing Axel's birthday and yeah. everything so it's just it's really nice so it's very yeah, special, it's very special. Very, I feel like it's a very soul aligning day and it it's is nice yeah it's, yeah sometimes you have those moments where the universe just conspires to bring you together with some yep. people who you just meant to meet and I I'm feeling that right now so yeah. thank yeah. you yeah. I'm so excited yeah. <laughs> um yeah do you want to do you have anything else to sort of add before we kind of throw Taya into the deep end no I think I'm ready I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and me too yeah. and I think a this. lot of people are going to feel you know a lot with your story and you know you're going to help a lot of people so and you already have obviously even just the yeah. fact that you've helped Megan um yeah and can I just time, say so. when Megan did reach out to me that was such a um a moment of just affirmation that what I was doing was meeting the intentions behind it and it meant so much to me I've still got that little postcard it's packed in the few things that I am keeping from my old life so it it was a very special moment for me so thank you very much for reaching out in the first place wow thank you all right um well I guess where to start um I when I found out I was pregnant I had a then one-year-old daughter and like everyone else I'm just hanging for that ultrasound that first ultrasound um I know it's generally a 12-week one but we were told to have it closer to 13 weeks because it seems more accurate then so we waited those long 13 weeks and we very excitedly brought our one-year-old daughter along to the appointment and just could not wait for her to get to see her brother or sister Um, it wasn't long into the appointment that something started to feel a little bit off. I think having been through it all with my daughter, um, just the difference in not having the screen offered to me to see, um, just the body language and the lack of conversation from the sonographer and, you know, my husband didn't really notice because he was so busy looking after our one-year-old as you need to in all of these situations um however probably about 15 minutes in um she stepped out and I said to my husband this doesn't feel right I feel like something's wrong he said we've been here much longer than I've ever been in an ultrasound for she's not showing us the baby the whole reason Cadence is here is so that she can have a look and I just yeah, I just felt that something was in the air. And unfortunately, I was seeing one of the sonographers who couldn't actually 
divulge any information. So I left that office with no answers and just this feeling of dread. Um, on the way home, I actually called my doctor and his um, receptionist had said she actually has done some work at those um, ultrasound clinics. And she said, look, some people do take a little bit longer than others, but I'll phone around and let you know um, if she is one of those people. She phoned me back and said, look, she is notorious for going longer, but as soon as we know anything, we'll let you know. Um, it was two days before I could see my doctor. So I'm sure you can imagine those nights weren't the most peaceful sleeps I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, and when I walked into that doctor's office, just one look at his eyes, I knew that I wasn't just being a paranoid pregnant woman, that something was up. Um, and he gently broke the news to me and he said it was something along the lines of, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but um, it, some fluid had been detected on my baby's lungs and they suspected a condition called hydrops at the time, mm -hmm. um, which I'd never heard of. It wasn't something that I was mentally prepared for. And even though I'd had a fear that something was wrong, you don't really know exactly what that's going to look like until you're in that situation. Um, I was sent off to have a blood test on the way to the hospital. And while I was having my blood test, my husband came to collect me so that he could drive us the rest of the way. When we arrived at the hospital, we waited in emergency until some specialists were available to speak to us. And then we were taken into a room and had, I guess, hydrops explained a little bit more to us as being a condition that signals a chromosomal abnormality. And chromosomal abnormality is not a term that you ever want said to you when you're expecting a baby. Um... I think I cried more in that room than I'd ever cried in my entire life. It just was all flowing from me. It was, you know, we'd gone into that 12-week ultrasound thinking about how are we going to announce that we're pregnant and we left it going, oh, my God, I don't think that things are right. So it was just such a shifting of worlds to go from being on that ultimate high to just having everything that you were expecting sort of torn from you. Um, yeah, and then the following week we went and saw a specialist and on the way to that specialist um, we had to go and have an ultrasound. And obviously in the interim, like anyone else in this generation, I did an extensive amount of Googling and <laughs> none of it was good, but then you'd always read that story of, they thought it was this, but then my baby was fine. And you just want to be that 0.0001% case where they've just stuffed it up. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't. We went in and we had our ultrasound before we went into the specialist office. And we'd already basically been told that we would need to make the choice to terminate our pregnancy. So when I went into that ultrasound, it was probably different from most people having an ultrasound. I was hoping not to see signs of life because I didn't want to make that decision. Um, I wanted it taken away from me and I sat there and I could see movement and I'm like, is that actual movement or is that just mm. the prodding? And 
you you know you're looking for a heartbeat you're looking for any signs of life so when we were finally told I'm sorry but your baby has passed it wasn't your typical reaction I guess because it was almost like a wave of relief um yeah we didn't have to make a choice that was never ever going to be a choice it was just something that we would have had thrust upon us um I then went and saw the specialist who spoke to me a little bit more about um high drops and she was like a lot of experts in the field they can become very detached to what you're actually going through and I walked away feeling probably more confused and feeling like I hadn't had any empathy around what was the hardest thing that I'd ever been through um yeah and this all happened on a Friday which meant unfortunately because a DNC which is the procedure to remove your baby essentially from your body um they would only do on a weekday so we had the beautiful task of going into a weekend pregnant but not expecting and I had to wait to be contacted to book that in so that we could move on to the next stage goodness yeah yeah um I guess I'll pause and see if there were any questions before I go on to I'm the next stage of yeah, our story. Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw in here because um, for me, um, obviously personally, I haven't been touched by miscarriage mm-hmm. um, and I just, I'd like to know a little bit more about, you know, the classifications or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the, the wording with DNC and things like that of, of what most people just actually don't know, mm-hmm. um, like myself, um, so, and, and you don't until you kind of, you're thrust into that world. And yeah. this is another reason why we really um, want to share these types of things. And, you know, so that people do understand mm-hmm. what these words mean and, um, and, and from your experience. Yeah. So essentially the procedure of a DNC is very similar to what the procedure for an abortion is. However, I feel like the emotion behind it is significantly different and even just talking about it as terminating the pregnancy and um there's got to be a better term when it's not a choice and I get that no one ever wants to make the choice to have an abortion but when it's for medical reasons and it's a medical termination I just feel like there's something hugely lacking there to actually reflect the emotion and the level of choice behind that yeah um but yeah a dnc as i said is similar to the procedure that you have for an abortion mm-hmm. and i had no idea of what it actually looked like before i was booked in to go and have that mm-hmm. i found out that it requires you to fast for 12 hours beforehand in case anything goes wrong and they need to do a more extensive surgery which um i will tell you about shortly but mm-hmm. that happened to me be my case um it also yeah you go into there you're asked a lot of questions which for them feel like a tick box like Mm. I have to ask this question and I believe that um the doctor I even spoke to said look chances of any of these things happening are really low but we actually have to ask you do you consent to blood donations do you consent to a hysterectomy 
um, oh, I think there was something else, but they were questions that she even said, you're young and healthy. I can't see any of these being a problem. <laughs> However, yeah, it turned out for me that they were. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, which is which is interesting because, um, you know, they you, you they can expect you. Yes, they'll talk about the fact that, oh, but you're healthy. We expect it. Everything will be fine. Yeah. But in in that, it, and especially, you know, you are that case where mm. things, you know, it, making you expect that things can't go wrong. And that's just the thing with even just pregnancy in general where yeah. they just kind of, oh, it'll be fine. And they just, they don't explain to you that there's so many factors of things that can go wrong. Yeah. And I don't know that explaining in detail, all of these things could possibly happen. I don't know if that's actually helpful either because yeah. you're already in a super anxious state. That's I, right. Yeah. I almost feel like the fact that they were rather dismissive of it mm. for most women, that will be the appropriate response. And they're preventing those women from um just getting into a headspace where they are dreading that worst case scenario. So I am okay with how they handled it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I just did not expect to be that random scenario yeah, where absolutely. intervention was needed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Wow. Already a story. I'm just so engrossed in it and so um just feeling all of the things that you're saying for me is bringing back many memories and I'm sure that for some of our listeners it's doing the same um so I just wanted to pause and say thank you so much for sharing this openly and in the way that you are um and I was just wondering you know we're talking about how we get treated in these situations mm-hmm. was there something that you wished had happened differently looking back um I do wish that the specialist who I saw straight after finding out that my miscarriage had actually occurred was more empathetic um I wasn't just another number I was somebody who'd lost a baby so I just needed someone to care for me and to acknowledge that I'd lost my child and that it wasn't just, okay, well, you've just had a miscarriage due to your child having high drops. So I do wish that had happened. Um, Yeah, that was probably the main thing. Um, I do feel that the hospital that I went to in the end probably should have waited for my blood test results to come back in before they sent me to surgery because it was later revealed my platelet count was quite low, which is likely to have contributed to the blood loss issue I ended up experiencing. Yeah. So I guess I should probably explain what actually happened next. um, Yeah. If we'll um, go into that because it's... (laughs) Yeah. Some very intense times. So. so like all miscarriages are super complicated. Um, mine just happened to be particularly next level complicated in ways that I just, there was no way for me to even expect this. Um, so just before I was sent off to have my um, DNC, uh, the term, a new term was dropped that I hadn't heard up until that point. Um, everything I'd heard to that point had been about high drops and suddenly the term partial molar pregnancy was introduced. Um, 
this was probably about a minute before I was taken down to my surgery. And in that minute, again, I furiously Googled. Um, I saw things like chemotherapy. Um, I saw words like tumors. Um, yeah, and that scared scared me in an already vulnerable state. Um, I will say, though, I did come into that procedure almost very switched off to my emotions and just this is what I have to do next. I was very much trying to protect myself and, you know, in the interim over that weekend, I wasn't just a woman experiencing a miscarriage. I was also a mother. So you very much need to compartmentalize what's going on and that's tricky as well. But anyway, um, not long afterwards, the gurney arrived and the orderly got me on that bed and um, all the thoughts of the terms just kind of disappeared and the reality of what was about to happen just came flooding to me. I just remember staring at that ceiling as I was being wheeled to the surgery theatre and it was just, I think, obviously my expression was saying what I was feeling because the orderly looked at me and he said, it's okay to cry. This is a very sad thing. And I did. My tears just were mm. everywhere. And that orderly is probably the person throughout everything I went through that I'm most thankful for because he was someone who recognized the emotion behind what was happening and not just the procedure. So, yeah, I really should probably try to track down that orderly and just let him know yeah. what that meant to me because it really has stuck with me. And that's that's pretty impressive, especially the fact that it's come from yeah. A male yeah. of all people throughout that whole situation, that, mm -hmm. that person is the one that gave you that empathy. And it, that's the amazing. orderly of all people, the yeah. person who knows yep. the least about what I'm actually going mm -hmm. through and the yep. person whose job is to just assist with moving yep. patients. Like, yeah, it was Incredible. amazing. Yeah, it, I think it highlights too just how much um, impact a few simple words mm -hmm. in the moment can be to validate and to be with and bring yeah. back to the present and this has had a lasting impact on yeah. you hasn't it absolutely yeah. I think yeah. it's made me more conscious about how I discuss um, trauma with other people going through things and I think so often we're uncomfortable in trauma so we try to go to solutions we try to think of ways to help someone through their trauma but we don't really think of how we can just give them permission to experience it yeah, yeah. just sit with them in this space and yeah. allow to be, just, and just be say it's okay yep. like you're allowed to feel like this and you can move on from that and then start thinking about how you can help them but I think we yeah. first need to acknowledge that what they're going through is horrible and they're allowed to feel that they don't have to try to have it all together for everyone else around them. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be worried about making people feel uncomfortable about their trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I arrived in the theatre and things go like they do. They give you a brief explanation of what's going to happen. They count you in um, or you count down, I think. I can't even remember. And you suddenly go into the world of fog. While I was in that, to me, I was so unaware of everything that was happening, obviously because I'm unconscious, but things got complicated. Um, due to the nature of my miscarriage, 
which was later confirmed to be a partial molar pregnancy. Um, and due to the fact that my platelets had dropped dramatically, once again, related to the fact that it was a partial molar pregnancy, it meant that um, I lost an extreme amount of blood during this procedure, uh, approximately 50% of the blood in my body. And I'm just lucky that I live in a country that has amazing medical um, resources and blood donors because without them, I wouldn't be here. Um, I received, I think it was like four packed units and about six um, platelets packs. I don't know. Um, but yeah, a, a significant amount of blood was put back in me. And when I eventually did come to a few hours after my surgery, uh, the expectation I had of feeling a little bit sad and sorry for myself and then heading home wasn't what I woke up to. I woke up to tubes coming from everywhere, a whole bunch of worried faces looking at me and just having no idea what had happened. Um, they told me that I'd experienced some blood loss. I'd had some hemorrhaging and they let me know that my husband was on his way. Meanwhile, my poor husband had been contacted. Um, he was, I had asked him not to come to the procedure because I thought it was more important that he was with our daughter. Um, but his mum was there with him because it was his miscarriage too. So he needed that emotional support. Anyway, my poor husband drove the 20 minutes to the hospital, literally just being told, you need to come, something's gone wrong. So he drove there thinking that in addition to having just lost a baby, that I was going to die. Um, and I know it's a term that gets thrown around, but my husband is literally my best friend. And I think for him in particular... I'm probably one of the only people who's ever truly seen him. So to think that you're going to lose that person is quite heavy. And I'm the mother of his child. So I can't even begin to imagine the thoughts that must have been running through his head. One, I'm going to lose my wife. Two, how do I parent my child? Three, how do I, you know, explain to her that her mum's not coming home? So fortunately... I had those blood transfusions and it was never a reality that he had to face, but it's a trauma that still lives on within him. And I see it whenever we come, we could be watching something on TV and something will have a storyline that somewhat reflects what we went through. And I can see it on his face that he's still dealing with a trauma that I never had to go through. So I was blissfully unaware of it all. It all just happened to me, but I didn't have to, I woke up knowing I was alive, whereas I didn't ever have to question losing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Taya. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, and just, uh, <laughs> I think we need to sit on that for a moment. It's, it's. I, I think you bring up a really good point that our partners involved when we lose a baby, whether male or female, mm -hmm. um, it impacts them in very different but very real ways mm -hmm. that um, while we have experienced the loss in quite a physical and mm -hmm. um, emotional way, so do they. 
but mm-hmm. it looks quite different. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Spot on. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes because we get the physical healing, mm-hmm. that helps us with our mental healing. Um, plus we're socialised that for females it's more acceptable for us to talk about what we're feeling about something. Mm-hmm. So I find with men they haven't had the physical thing and their priority is helping their wife who has or their partner who has gone through that physical thing. So they quite often shelf their own grief and sometimes they never look back at that shelf, but that shelf still exists and it impacts everything they do from that moment on. So, yeah, it's very important to be conscious of giving um, the dads in this situation or the other partner in this situation the permission to feel their grief too. Uh, It's not a competition between who's had it worse. You're both just experiencing a a loss on different levels yeah and also for the fact that with this especially for males um they like to be fixers mm-hmm. they like to fix problems that's generally how they're they're created mm-hmm. um so and this is what comes up for me a lot in conversations is that when they can't fix something they don't know how to deal with that mm-hmm. they feel useless mm-hmm. and it puts them like, yeah, on that sort of back seat and they just don't know how to – their coping mechanisms with that mm-hmm. just must be incredibly hard on their mental health when they cannot do anything about it yeah. and to have to sit back and just watch or let things be and and to sit in that space for them must be so incredibly hard and not being able to even – help to fix you as their wife or their partner emotionally as well is so heartbreaking for them yeah my husband actually used the words to me he said um I've never felt more helpless in my life yeah I really like how you said that it was still a trauma for your husband Mm -hmm. to live out an experience that didn't come to pass, yeah. thankfully, yeah. but it still draws attention to the fact that the fear and the realities and the choices that happen in that moment are so daunting and overwhelming and do stay with you yeah, forever because it brings new possibilities into your mind and it, ch- it does change your reality even if it doesn't come to pass yeah absolutely like I may have gone through all of that but I feel that mentally he's had to carry a load that I never had to so in some ways yeah his trauma was deeper um than some of the trauma that I had had to deal with or his trauma was wider like he had different types of trauma going on whereas most of my trauma was about the loss of my baby because I knew I was alive. I never had to question that. Yeah. So we're back in the hospital Mm -hmm. and you've woken up. Mm -hmm. There's tubes everywhere. Yeah. And your husband comes in at this stage. I think he arrived. I I have no idea about time frames because in that situation, time doesn't really exist, but I don't feel like it felt like a significant amount of time before I saw him and oh his face all I wanted to do was just care for him I didn't even care where I was I was just like it's okay I'm alive like it's fine 
Um, yeah, and I just did my best to reassure him and um, calm him down emotionally. And I just awaited being transferred from the hospital I was in to the Royal Women's in Melbourne because they're the hospital you go to for anything that's pretty major. Um, and I needed to be sent there for observation to find out if they needed to do any further surgeries. Um, yeah, so I waited for the ambulance. You're listening to a whole bunch of chatter and calls about you while you're laying there, which is really surreal. Um, I had them confirm with the, heard them confirming with the hospital, um, arranging a room, all those sorts of things. And then off in the ambulance, I went as I farewelled my husband and sent him back to our daughter. Um, when I got into the ambulance, I am someone who very much uses humor as a coping mechanism. So somehow after everything I went through, I just didn't want anyone else to feel uncomfortable. And I was making jokes with the ambulance officers the whole way there. And it's really bizarre when I look back at it. And even to the point that when we arrived at the next hospital, um, even though everything had been confirmed with the hospital, when I got there, they said, we don't know why she's here. And I went back to just being a case that needed to be fixed instead of an actual person. And um, the lady went back into the office and started trying to figure out what was going on. And I could hear her saying things like, oh, well, she seems fine. Um, and it's like, lady, I literally have just lost half the body of my body. My coping mechanism is to try to seem like I'm okay. And it's not even a conscious thing. It's just something I automatically go into. So surely having worked in this environment, you know that things aren't always as they appear. Um, fortunately, the ambulance officers I had were brilliant. They said, don't worry, we'll get this sorted for you. Like you're staying here. This is where you need to be. And eventually I was put in um, a little waiting room kind of or an examination room for about an hour while they sorted out what was going on with where I could actually sleep at this point because I had my surgery at about 6 p.m I hadn't eaten since the day before which is a side note but it when you haven't had any food or drink on top of all of this it does become a bit of an issue as well and I just remember saying can I please just have some water and they said well you can't in case you need to have another surgery um so eventually when they sorted out that I was meant to be there, that same um, woman came in and I think probably felt a bit bad about how things had gone down and started offering, said, look, I can't give you water. Can I get you some ice chips? And then started attempting to be a bit nurturing, which by that point I'd kind of closed myself off to and was like, mm, yep, yeah, no, you're not getting any of my energy right now. Um, but I did enjoy sucking on that ice chip. <laughs> um, but I do remember laying there for all of that time and just staring at photos of my daughter on my phone. She was just my happy place that I needed to go to, to escape where I actually was. Um, and then I had to wait for an anaesthetist to come and examine me. And she was clearly on her way out of the hospital. She had a bag and was very casual about everything going on. And, um, even use the phrase, you'll feel better in the morning when you get over all of this. Oh, God. Yeah. So for me, fortunately, I am pretty resilient. And I just remember thinking, 
that bothers me not for me it bothers me for other women who were going through this situation who are like completely fractured by it so I just thought come on you can't say that to a woman who's just been through what I've been through um the it's not a matter of you wake up tomorrow and you feel better like yeah so that was a major failing that I experienced in there and unfortunately there were a few more things like that that do come so I hope that anyone well I feel like anyone who is listening to this is very sensitive on the topic but perhaps if you do know someone who works in the medical fields maybe just remind them that these people are dealing with so much emotionally and to remember that we're people and we're not just something to fix we're not just another patient to fit in a bed and yeah our trauma is very real mm. absolutely so important. oh goodness yeah absolutely and it's so um yeah just to be mindful of that like you just brought up so much just in that those last couple of sentences and just that people just see you as another number mm-hmm. yeah and yeah what I think is really incredible about you, Taya, is that I'm hearing your story, but in amongst all of the emotions and things that are happening throughout your miscarriage, you're still thinking about other people. Mm. You're such a beautiful person. Yes. She's thinking about her husband, her daughter. Other people. Other like, women. And how, how these people that are affecting her would affect other people in a, a much worse situation so yeah you are a very incredible person it's just the only way I know how to be and yeah. um that's I guess probably a protective thing as well of not losing myself so much in my trauma um mm. it kind of takes me out of my own trauma if I'm concentrating on others a little bit yeah yeah um yeah and I guess Next from there, um, I eventually was taken to a room. It was probably about 4 a.m. at this stage. And uh, because I was in intensive care, there were lights on everywhere. There were sounds from machines everywhere. And I eventually drifted off for about two hours of a very uh, disrupted sleep. Um, And when I woke up, once again, I said, am I allowed to have some water? Um, probably the first thing I said was, can I have some water? And they said, you need to wait for the doctors to come by and to check you out. And, um, eventually I did have a group of doctors come to see me and they spoke about what had happened. Um, one of them actually expressed that they were really surprised that I didn't have a hysterectomy and that normally with that amount of blood loss that would have occurred. So in that moment, I was just like overwhelmed with gratitude because losing a child is one thing. Losing the ability to ever have that child is a completely different thing. And I don't know how I would have coped if that had have been my reality. Um, And I do remember, well, once again, I had had that much time with just me and my phone and Googling again. And one of the questions I had was about, I have a daughter like because I went through this was she a higher risk of having to go through this because I knew I was going to survive it but I never wanted anyone I knew to have to go through what I went through 
Um, fortunately, they did say because it was a partial molar pregnancy um, that it, it's not a hereditary thing. If it had been a molar pregnancy, that would have been a different thing. And I should probably explain what um, a molar and a partial molar pregnancy are. Yes, please do. They've just become so yeah. normal to me, which is yeah. horrible. Like, I'm, if they're normal to you, I'm sorry I feel for you. Um, essentially, a partial molar pregnancy is almost like twins gone wrong. It's like there were two sperm, one egg, and three strands or sets of chromosomes went into the baby and one went into the placenta. So instead of having the 46 chromosomes, is it? I can't even remember right now. But instead of having the number of chromosomes you're meant to have, you've got a whole extra strand. So the baby was never going to be able to survive. Um, it's normally you don't make it as far as I did, which was almost 14 weeks by the time um, we lost our baby. However, where the danger comes is in the placenta. It's not meant to have genetic material and having that genetic material almost acts as like a pre-cancer type of thing where it's trying to infect your body. So that's why it's so important that they are able to clear all of your placenta out because, um, yeah, it's a really dangerous type of miscarriage and a molar pregnancy is even more dangerous because in that situation there's not a baby. Um, the chromosomes have just gone into the placenta and, yeah, that's a really dangerous type of miscarriage, which generally results in chemotherapy. Um, the type I had required six to 12 months of monitoring. And if you made it to six months without having your HCG hormone levels return below a certain amount, then chemotherapy is your reality as well. But yeah, that's a brief explanation of mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And um, I'd just like to draw mm -hmm. attention to the fact that um, the hormone, the HCG that you have mm -hmm. to wait to drop um, does have a really big impact on your physiology and mm -hmm. your healing mm -hmm. progress um, after miscarriage and it can really affect um, how you heal and all of the things that happen in the journey afterwards. So I'd love to dive into that when we jump yes, back into I your definitely story. definitely will explore that. Um, I will lastly, on the topic of the hospital mm -hmm. stay, um, one other major thing that happened was the nurse who had come in to bring me my meal or something called check on me, um, she mistakenly thought I'd had a molar pregnancy, which is different because there's no baby there, there is a baby here. But she said to me, oh, well, there was no baby anyway. And I'm like, even if I had have had a full molar pregnancy, never tell a woman who's just experienced a miscarriage of any description that she had no baby. There was a pregnancy regardless. In my case, there actually was a baby. It wasn't a viable baby, but there was a baby. So that just, oh, I thought that would break someone to be told that, oh, well, like basically, what are you so worried about? There wasn't even a baby. Yeah, it just was mind-blowing to me. Yeah, it's interesting. And once again, you're thinking about other people um, in that moment. And just like on that, yeah, as you said, just sort of touching on the fact that baby or not, mm. you're pregnant 
Yeah. Your body's saying it's pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, you've had that hope and that that foresight of what is to come and, and I what felt you're... that baby. Yeah, I'd that's seen right. that baby. That's right. So even in the ultrasound, mm. I did manage to peek my head around and mm -hmm. there was a heartbeat. I'd heard a heartbeat. Yeah. So to have someone turn around and tell me that my baby had never existed was, yeah, really heavy. I think that fortunately I just felt confident enough to know that that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, that really – it can really, upset me to hear yeah. that phrase and it can really damage it somebody and you know and and how they they you know go forward with their yeah. thoughts and how they think on everything and and that's where i think especially we we've spoken about this so much just within the medical professional mm. ways of how people um you know discuss things with you and just how they speak to you it's just oh, they yeah really, some some people really need to just have that totally and I, I think yeah. probably more than anything it was really dismissive of your right to grieve it was almost like well this needed to happen so you kind of just need to deal with it yeah and you do have to deal with it, but you're allowed to grieve as you deal with it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That everything happens for a reason. Yeah. A lot of, yeah. I say the word crap. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and people do believe that, but I think in that space, it's not the right, it's not the right thing to, God. um, you know, let, let people just try and get on with their life. We know that we yeah. know that the space is needed in, you know, to be in that space with someone regardless of their situation mm. and what they've been through, you know, they need to really have a good, um, you know, hold that space for someone and just figuring out the right words or just yeah. not saying anything yeah. sometimes. Just let them yeah, be. there's nothing wrong with let, some silence. Yeah, that's right. Let them be. Yeah. Here's your food. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I guess if it was nurse, she probably wasn't bringing me food. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she was probably checking my so, vitals or yeah, something. But yeah, just yeah. anybody with whoever is in that yeah. space, you know. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. It's okay sometimes to not say anything to Yeah. yeah. So um, after all of that, um, I was given the clearance to eat, obviously, and then I was moved to another room for observation for a couple of nights. And while I was there, the specialist who I had seen post-miscarriage actually came to visit me and it was like a completely different person. Suddenly I had someone who was so warm and empathetic and apologetic and um, she apologized because she hadn't actually received the note that they were suspecting a partial molar pregnancy because she'd only ever spoken to me about high drops. So I think that she owned the fact that she hadn't handled that situation well and was suddenly incredibly empathetic to what I was going through and even offered her number for me to call her any time and it was a complete transformation. So it is a good reminder that even though some people do stuff up, um, it doesn't mean that they don't care. Um, and hopefully for her that was a good lesson in tapping into that empathy earlier mm -hmm. on in the piece. Um, but, yeah, when she was telling me about a partial molar pregnancy, I found out what that entails going forward. So it's not a matter of you've had the miscarriage, you've survived the miscarriage, and then you go back to normal life and start trying again. In this situation, you are placed on what's called a molar register, which is nothing that I'd ever heard of and definitely not something I thought my name would be on. Um, 
and you are required to have extensive testing done until, as me was saying, you get under that level, which is pretty much zero. Mm. You have to get to about zero or 0. 0.001. Mm. Um, of HCG in your blood. Of HCG. Mm. And because of the because I'd made it as far as I had in that pregnancy, my HCG was significantly higher than I guess most people who have a molar pregnancy because I think most people will miscarry around nine weeks. Um, yeah, so I had to deal with that. And you, they do this in a couple of different ways. It may be blood tests or it may be urine collection. For me, it was urine collection and it was weekly and I'm not just talking, I go and pee in a cup and off I go. I'm talking, I get given two litre jugs and for a 24-hour period every single week, I'm required to do every wee in that jug, um, which when you have a life at all is not something you want to do. So I've been, I remember having to take that into work and just having it in another bag and trying to hide it under a sink. I remember going to a party and having to do the same thing, just finding somewhere in their spare bathroom that I could hide my jug of urine. Um, so, I mean, that's inconvenient. But on top of that, every test result is so emotionally loaded. Every time you get it, you're wanting that number to be zero. And when it's not or when it's only halved or when it's not even halved, this is a new devastation because you think, okay, we'll be back to zero in a month and then we can get on with our life. But the reality for me was that it's really hard to move on from something that you can't move on from because you're trapped in it in a lot of ways. And during this time, you're not allowed to get pregnant because then they can't manage your HCG level and they don't know that they've got all of the, the what they call the mole. Um so I continued this process for, it was weekly for about five months. Um, and then it went to fortnightly and I didn't think I was going to be that person who was still doing this six months later. I thought, oh, yep, cool. I'll be dropped and I'll be back to normal in two months. And I remember speaking to an auntie of mine who had been a midwife and saying, you know, how soon can I start trying? And her saying, look, it's best to wait a month or two before you do and just have at least one normal period and thinking, cool, I'll do that. And then we can get on with our lives and bring this child that we want so much into the world. Um, but yeah, five and a half months later, I was still doing these urine tests and still looking at these numbers. And we were getting to the point that to give ourselves the best chance of getting to zero, I was doing it as close to collection as possible, just hoping that we'd get there. And even to the point that for the first three or so months, we would drop it just at our local clinic and it would get collected. And then to get two days closer, as we moved on further along the process, um, we would drive it the hour to the hospital directly so we could drop it the day before testing, just hoping that it would somehow have our numbers under and that we'd get a phone call saying, we're taking you off the molar registry. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm not sure what your situation was in terms of um, your timeline, mm -hmm. 
but um, in my own experience, my GP gave me about six months, mm-hmm. sorry, my obstetrician gave me six months to get to that zero mark yep. before considering chemotherapy. Was that something that came up for you? Yeah, that's what I was told. And then obviously, if you need to have chemotherapy, that's six months before being able to start trying to conceive become significantly longer. So you were you are fearing that line. So when I was at five and a half months along and still getting readings, like, yeah, they were down to the single digits, but there were still readings there. Like, I was panicked about what was going to happen there. Um, fortunately, just shy of the six-month mark, um, I got a reading that they felt was low enough um, to potentially remove me from the register, but they wanted to do an extra blood test just to confirm that they were happy with that. Um And yeah, that happened just, I think it was the first week into the new year that we finally got cleared. And honestly, when we were in that final week of December, we thought we don't even want to, we don't want it to happen right now. We want to start our year fresh. We don't want to get pregnant in this year that has just been so horrible to us. Um, So it was really nice that the first test result we got in our new year was the one saying, hey guys, we think you might be okay. And it was such a nice way to kick off kick off our year and it brought new hope for us. And yeah, um, when we got that result, we were like, let's get trying again. We are more than ready to finally realize the family that we've pictured all this time. And I was really lucky. The second month we tried, we found out we were pregnant and it was actually... We fell pregnant the week before our baby would have been due. And that felt really special to me that I wasn't going to have to go through that day. And it was one of those things, like I know that you can't tell until you're a certain amount on, but honestly, two days after the time that we conceived, I went out for breakfast with my mum and my husband and I ordered something with a um, sauce on there and I was like, oh, this is so rich. And I remember it going, I'm, I just thought to myself, oh my God, I'm pregnant. And there was no way of me telling the pregnancy test. We're just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm only going to give you a single line here. Yeah. <laughs> but there was just something in me that just knew. And that meant that when that day rolled around, the two couldn't be so um I knew our baby was finally coming and it was so nice that I went into that day with a new hope that I wouldn't have had if we hadn't have fallen pregnant or if I didn't think I was pregnant yeah Yeah. that's beautiful little and that's little Ezra little Ezra yeah do you want to um I don't know if Megan wants to step in yet but um I'm I'd like to obviously you know, you, you have um, Cadence and Ezra. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would have um, spoken about this before, but Cadence is obviously your daughter that we've mm-hmm. been speaking about. And um, Ezra is that beautiful, what most people would use as the term rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> um, after the big storm and, and what a storm it has, um, you know, yeah. it was for you. It's um, incredible. Um, if you want to take us through any... I don't know because obviously it mm-hmm. is it's a, it's a beautiful story with Ezra but um any challenges or um any things that you sort of went through how that was that process mm-hmm. um because people going into pregnancy mm-hmm. after loss is it's very challenging yeah um, absolutely yeah 
it, I think it's really hard to um, form that connection early in the pregnancy when you have that fear lingering within you. I think the fact that even before I'd had the miscarriage, I'd said to my husband, we'd spoken about the fact that it was a possibility, which is probably what helped us cope as well as we did. Um, and we decided that for us, if that were ever to have happened, we viewed it as not losing our baby, but losing a body that wasn't right for our baby's soul. And we wanted our baby to have every opportunity that their big sister had in a body that was worthy of them. So we, yeah, we didn't think that we'd lost our baby. We just mm -hmm. thought we'd been taking it on a really horrible detour. Mm -hmm. um, and when we found out that we were pregnant with Ezra, it was almost like this, we're getting that body that we need for our baby. And look, we absolutely, absolutely did have those fears. And I think that you naturally disconnect yourself until you get to that 12 week scan and everything's confirmed. But for us, they did do early, earlier scans because of our history. Um, and that really helped um, to sort of come to terms with the fact that just because we'd been through what we'd been through, it didn't mean that it was going to happen again. And also I think what helped as well was the chances of a molar pregnancy reoccurring are really low. Mm -hmm. So I just had to remind myself of that statistic and say, surely I can't go through all of that and then get the, and be that extreme, extremely low risk statistic again. Mm -hmm. Like I've done my dash. This baby has to come. <laughs> what we've been through is enough. Um, but it was different from our first pregnancy with Cadence. In that pregnancy, we had so much confidence. It was just like, of course, why would we have a miscarriage? Like we're young, we're healthy. Um, we were talking about names pretty much a second we had our baby. And I felt that we did really yeah. hold off on names and discussions until we made it to that 12-week mark. And I remember even when I would think about broaching it, my husband would be like, let's just wait. And mm -hmm. I think he was really afraid of getting attached to something that might not be realized again. But, yeah, fortunately for us, it, we, it was realized and we did get to meet our beautiful boy Ezra and – He's exactly who he's meant to be. And I'm not going to say that everything happens for a reason because I hate that phrase. And I just think that there are so many things that happen that you can't justify with the reason. Yeah. However, I do feel like you can choose to find meaning and growth in everything you go through. So I didn't go through this so that I could evolve as a person, but I chose to evolve as a person so that what I went through didn't mean nothing. Wow. Yeah. Oh. And that's, that's a pretty, that's a really incredible way of looking at it because so many people, um, their growth from such, you know, extreme loss, um, and sadness and the grief, and they'll just sort of try and go back to normal. Mm -hmm. But, um, the outside world just also does expect that from you, but yet, what they don't understand is there is no going back to normal. No. You can't. There is – it's just not possible. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it was only a couple of weeks after we had the miscarriage and all the complications that followed that I actually said to my husband, do you mind if I write a post on Facebook and just share a little bit about our story? 
And I said to him, I just hope that it might help someone else going through a miscarriage or that it might get someone to see what blood do- blood donations can actually do. And I know that you two kind souls are probably going, oh, she's thinking about other people again. But for me, I needed that because I needed it to not mean nothing. Yeah. So I thought, well, if at least one person goes and donates blood, then somebody else is saved because mm-hmm. of what we went through. So it helped to attach some sort of meaning to it. So again, I don't think it happened for a reason, but I could find some meaning within it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I would like to sort of touch on um, why, like a couple of things that you had sort of um, spoke with us about. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons and why you dislike the concept of not telling anyone you're pregnant that 12-week rule Mm -hmm. so I'd like you know if you want to delve into that on on your personal level definitely I think like I'm not suggesting you should go on do a Facebook announcement the second you see two lines on a pregnancy test however I really dislike this notion that it's a secret until we get there in case something happens it's like what so in case if something happens we have absolutely no support it's ridiculous Tell people who you would feel comfortable having the reverse conversation with. You will need those people. And every time you have that conversation and explain what happened, it will help you heal. So I know that people say, well, I don't want to tell anyone in case something happens because I don't want to have to keep having that same conversation. But I know for me that every single time I had that conversation, I felt stronger having that conversation yeah, the first few times I had it, I burst into tears. But now I can talk about it quite like objectively almost. And just this is the situation. This is what we went through. And I feel a resolve and a strength within my story. And also the second part of it is it's like, why do I need to hide it? Like it's something I should be ashamed of that or that I'm not entitled to grieve. Um yeah, I'm just sick of being told to keep our stories quiet so that we don't make anyone else uncomfortable. I'm really uncomfortable. I need my friends right now. I need people to know that this happened. Mm-hmm. And if they feel uncomfortable, that's something that they need to work out. It's not on me to make other people feel comfortable about my my trauma and my husband's trauma. Um, yeah, so that's the, the other bit for me is just... We, we keep feeling so lonely in something that's so common because we've been socialized to just be quiet about it. That grief doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere and either we process it by um, having conversations or just feeling the love and support of those around us or we internalize it and it completely changes who we are as people for the worst. Um, yeah, and I guess the other thing too is if, someone I loved was going through this situation, I'd want the opportunity to be able to support them. So I don't like that this 12-week rule deprives people of the opportunity to give support to those people that they love as well. Mm-hmm. And allowing that space and, you know, it, it comes back to the fact of it's okay to not be okay Yeah. Um, in that whole situation. And with the 12 weeks, I mean, obviously I'm a – 
very good example of that no time is mm -hmm. a safe time. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you, you know, it's 12 weeks or yep. the first day. Like <laughs> for me, I just feel like there's, there, there is no safety net and, you know, there's, there's baby loss at any time and yeah. they try and label this safe rule. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not even a thing. Which is probably really damaging to people who do make that 12 week mark because mm -hmm. there's a, a false um, confidence mm -hmm. and you want to be confident in a pregnancy, yeah, but like there's this illusion mm -hmm. that, that oh, once you hit that, you're good. we're all good now. <laughs> Nothing can possibly happen. Yeah. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. like I know your story and mm -hmm. I feel for your story and it's sadly not the only one I know. I've had multiple close friends of mine um, lose babies at six, seven months. And like, I even remember going through what I went through and thinking, oh, at least it wasn't this. And it's mm -hmm. you do go into a space where you minimize your grief in comparison to others and it's yeah. not healthy. It's no. not like it's good to have that perspective and to be like, okay, these people have been through it and they're okay, but don't compare your grief. Like you no. might have lost a baby at six weeks and you might have not have even realized that they were there. You're still allowed to grieve that. It, it's it's not about whose miscarriage was more traumatic or whose baby loss was worse. Mm -hmm. They're all just different types. And yeah, just don't deny your grief because I know I definitely minimize mine. Yeah. And that's a good point because I know that um, obviously with um, Tim and I, we spoke about it ever since we had that initial shock mm -hmm. um, and not to obviously delve away from your story, but just, <laughs> just bringing up the fact of, you know, we said we would be traumatized mm -hmm. and so extremely sad no matter when we lost him yeah for it, if it had have been from day dot or you know and up until when we did yeah you know it's just we knew that for us losing him was just oh, horrendous like yeah. you know it, it was going to change our world no matter what so yeah. So whenever somebody says, oh, you know, I'm really sorry and, you know, I had a miscarriage, but it's not like you. Yeah. But for me, it is because you've lost that maybe no matter what yeah. and no matter when. And it's, it, it, you can't, in having that comparison, you should never compare your loss to someone mm -hmm. else because your grief is your grief. Yeah. And you get to sit with that and you should sit with that and I should sit with mine and, you sit with yours and but that's what brings us here in this room and mm -hmm. I think you know it's incredible to just sort of yeah be able to sit with it mm -hmm. so yeah I couldn't agree more yeah. oh that was a great little uh <laughs> spill. <side spill. laughs> yeah so, I'd like to come back to Taya's story mm -hmm. to bring us into the present day mm -hmm. and just reflecting on some of the things that have some of the themes that have come up through your story mm -hmm. um something that really strikes me is you you shared that you are a very sensitive soul and I yes. really feel that you you just have this beautiful gentle nature about you but in that gentle nature I sense such a striking resilience in you and that um, and I feel that is has grown from your many experiences mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of mentioned how you feel that that's what's getting you through your current yeah. 
crazy time. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to backtrack some of the themes that came up for me in your resilience and your coping was that you use humour, mm -hmm. that you care for others, that you're a nurturer and that you have been able to kind of create a platform to share. Do you think that there's any other ways that you've been able to cope or process your story? Honestly, I feel like I was incredibly fortunate that when I miscarried, I was already a mother because for me, it's really hard to get too lost in your grief when you've got a ray of sunshine that keeps pulling you back to the present. And I'm forever grateful for my little girl for helping give that to me. Um, as much as I still needed to feel my grief, I needed to not get lost in it. And I needed, she needed her mum. So she was going through things too. And I will never be able to fully understand if and how what we went through impacted her. But I just knew that I needed to be her mum. And that kind of forced me to get out of myself and to move forward. Yeah, I that's kind of it, I guess, is just, and just her laughter. Um, it's hard not to smile when you hear a child laugh, regardless of what's going on in your world. So, yeah, she was really fundamental for me in my situation to just, yeah, healing. Yeah. And I think that just, I'm just going to bring up on that, because um, obviously for me mm -hmm. as well, having a child that you have parenting after loss because mm -hmm. um, obviously you're already you're just touching on that, but yeah. it is incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, so just some sort of things that helped guide you and mm -hmm. maybe what you did or things that helped not just her as, as being mm -hmm. there, but um, how you found coping with parenting. I think I just needed to – give myself permission to to live again to think about the fact that like it's tricky you're trying to honor your loss but you're also trying to live your life and honor your other child and it's a really hard thing to balance but I think you need to realize that you're allowed to laugh again um, and that when you do have those moments that you laugh it doesn't mean that you are not grieving it doesn't mean that you don't wish that that child got to be there with you. It's just that you need to keep living your life and you owe it to that child who didn't arrive as well. Like they don't want to be the thing that destroyed your world. So, yeah, I think just channeling that love into the child who is there, if you're fortunate to be in the position where you do have that child and to just really... I had so much gratitude for me that unlike many, um, I already had a child and I remember thinking there are women out there who would actually envy my position because even though I went through this horrible thing, at the end of the day, I have cadence. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, that's what helped me to parent and just like a lot of things in life you just need to be kind to yourself and yeah. not get lost in your own head mm -hmm. yeah and I'm just gonna throw in again I think when coming back to how people um 
you know, speak to you and mm-hmm. things and things that aren't and aren't helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when people say the things like, oh, but at least you have a healthy child. Yeah. Things like that aren't helpful. <laughs> you know, no, they're definitely not. You know, it, we know that we know that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. We 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 have that. We do acknowledge it, but it is it is a very um, <laughs> it's not it's a, a very nice occurrence. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think when you're in that situation, it's easy to be really offended by things like that. Um, however, I think you need to go make a conscious choice to look at people's intentions. They're trying to say something to help in a situation that they feel helpless in. So even though they're not using the right words, sometimes you just need to forgive people that and maybe just mention it to them a little bit later and just say, just maybe be conscious of saying this. I know that your intention was to try to help me, mm-hmm. but for some people that would really hurt. Um, but yeah, I, People say a lot of stupid things because they don't know what to say. Some people will avoid you completely because they don't know what to say. So if you're someone who knows someone experiencing loss and you don't know what to say, I would recommend just saying exactly that. I don't know what to say, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. Yeah. And I think that's honestly, hands down, the best thing that people can say because it's honest and by just being there for them mm-hmm. is the most important thing that you can yeah. actually do for your friend or family. Yeah. We're all nodding so much right now. <laughs> we know that that's just such yeah. a t- home truth that mm. we've, we've all been there. All right. Um, one thing that I wanted to come back to, mm-hmm. something that was very important to you and I think we'd like to express to our listeners was mm-hmm. the importance of blood donation mm-hmm. and how – that saved your life and um, has impacted you? Yeah, absolutely. I am forever indebted to the people who donated blood. Um, If I was in a country where I didn't have access to blood donations, I wouldn't be here. My husband wouldn't have his wife. My daughter wouldn't have her mother and my son wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't even place a value on the level of gratitude I have to people who do donate. And if you are someone who is eligible to donate, please do. If you're not, please have a conversation with someone who is and just let them know that you've heard a story about someone whose life was saved because of blood donation. I think that we all know blood donation exists, but I think we know very few people who have actually been helped by a blood donation. So that's why I was passionate about putting a story to it and making it real just to help get someone else um yeah help them have their life saved as well yeah yeah it's so important and something that so many people as you said they just you don't know many stories behind Mm -hmm. because it's um I think something not that people are ashamed of it but they just kind of probably keep it to themselves a lot more and and that's why I mean that's why we're sitting in a room Mm -hmm. because we're here to share so many stories of what people keep way too close to their chests so yeah. Was there anything else, Taya, that you'd like to say to our listeners? Um, I think just to be kind to yourselves if you are going through this, to realise that there's not a timeline on your grief, that, that there's not a correct way to grieve, um, and to just make some space for you to process your loss in the way that you need to. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
that's beautiful. So now you're off to the big United States yeah. and we're just going to have to sit and watch you from afar and we we are so incredibly honoured that we've been able to get you before you left Thank and you. be our so very first guest on our podcast and just being able to share the space with you even mm -hmm. if it wasn't for a podcast <laughs> to share with hopefully many, many people but even just to be here with us, like we are just so blessed and oh, the, if, if people could actually feel the energy in the room, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So I have no doubt that the universe, um, brought these timelines in the way that they did for a reason. So I don't think it was possible that you would have started this podcast with me already gone. I think it's, it's all come to be the way it's meant to. Yeah. Um, and I did also want to add that if anyone has experienced a pregnancy loss of any kind and doesn't feel comfortable speaking to the people around them, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm at And So She Thought, so you can find me there. I am more than happy to be a, a space that you can just feel heard. Yep. Yeah, and you'll be able to find Taya obviously through all the links that we have attached to this. And yeah, it's just such an incredible, um, you know, just to have her here and obviously share her story. But as she said, like she's here for you guys too, which is such a beautiful thing for someone to be able to um, do for others, which is really nice. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of the Still Mama tribe. Yeah. Thank you. That's right. The first inductee. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys and thank you for listening. And we will, uh, Megan and I are going to wrap it up a little bit soon and we'll have a little debrief. Um, but thank you very much, Taya. You're an incredible being. So, You're and we're going to miss, we're going to miss you so much. So miss yeah. You too. yeah, thank you. information provided on the Still Mama Tribe is for educational and informational purposes only. The information is not a substitute for professional advice or care. Please seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional in the event that something you learn here raises questions or concerns for your health. Also, if you require support regarding your loss, SANS Australia has a national support line 24 hours a day. The number is 1300 072 637. Also see our website for further resources and links for support.